welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Craig, I am very excited to listen to this interview with Joel because I, I didn't get to be a part of it. I've heard he has many accolades, one of which is even an OBE. Yeah, it was very interesting. Such a nice person, uh, you know, more than anything else. A disruptor, um, very passionate about diversity and inclusion. And yeah, got some great stories, a great career history, and I think lots more to come in his future. So very excited to hear what he has to say. Me too. Let's listen. Our guest this week is Joel Blake, OBE, founder and CEO of the GFA Exchange. Joel has had an impressive entrepreneurial track record, starting one of the UK's first diverse recruitment companies at the age of 24 before embarking on ventures spanning professional services and fintech. Diversity is a key driver of Joel's leadership, vision, and strategy, and he has received prestigious recognitions, including an OBE for services to business support and enterprise. Adding to that, the GFA Exchange was voted a UK top 100 fintech startup in 2019. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you very much, Craig. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Let's start right from the top then, Joel. So, Obviously, you've had a, a very interesting career and, and quite unique career path to date. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, starting with your work as a, a social entrepreneur at the age of 21? Yeah, um, I I got into entrepreneurship on a bit of a, a passion journey, really. Age of 21, I, I'd got a role within the youth service, helping young people develop their employability skills to get into um, many areas of work, but a particular focus on professional services. And at the time, I could see that schools and community groups were being challenged by funding to provide support to ensure that type of training was available for the widest uh, diverse group. And there was a distinct gap for uh, young black males within school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked at that as an area of, of focus um, for what I wanted to do. So I, I set up a mentoring consultancy and essentially went around schools um, delivering workshops that I'd created to help uh, teachers engage better with young people from that background. And being a, a, a young black man myself at the time, I felt I could culturally connect more with the young people, but do it in a professional manner that helps the teachers get the skills and, 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 and the support that they needed. And that just kind of cascaded a whole journey into this kind of diversity and, and inclusion space where I that eventually grew into a recruitment company um, as I say, become one of the first diversity recruitment companies in the UK where we focused on black and Asian talent from Russell Group Universities into professional services. Um, and then that grew into a consultancy um, service, which I still have to this day. Um, but along the way, um, because we were working with professional services firms quite heavily, um, both for the recruitment business and the consultancy business, um, I could see an increasing gap within the financial services space Um because a lot of our clients seemed to just to be coming from that space, which was just uh, uncanny at the time for us. 
but that opened up conversations around entrepreneurship, other ways of developing EDI as a tool to help businesses to grow. So less about unconscious bias and race relations act and more about how do we actually implement diversity in our organizations to drive commercial value. So we started becoming um, known for being at the front end of, of those types of approaches, you know, how do you get into new customer markets? Well, let's build a strategy to do that using diversity and, and getting into that space. And then that just took me into more into financial services and had an opportunity to fund new businesses who were not getting access to finance, but predominantly young people and people from diverse backgrounds. And so I set up a financial lending firm with two friends um, and we went on to fund just under a thousand businesses um, in about three and a half years. Um, so I think at one point we were doing 20, 25 businesses a month. We were funding right across the UK. Um, and I could see a gap in the market for better insight to make better lending decisions. So I decided to exit the business to set up GFA Exchange. So it's been a bit of an eclectic journey, really. It's not been a straight line. You know, I didn't go university. I, I didn't follow the traditional professional route. I just kind of saw opportunities but stay true to my purpose, which is about making it fair and inclusive for everyone, regardless of any difference. And that's something I live by to this day. Thank you, Joel. And um, let's talk a little bit about the GFA exchange then. And we're going to get into uh, the diversity conversation in a bit more detail. Uh, but uh, just, you know, talking about the GFA, tell, can you tell us what you do there? What problems you help solve? I know you just you briefly touched on it. Uh, and then obviously, you, again, you've touched on what drove you to set up the company, but anything else that you, you feel would be beneficial for the listeners? Absolutely, Craig. Um, you know, when, when, when I was in the financial lending firm, um, it became clear that most lending decisions being made based on credit risk data and historical information that organizations have, and we were certainly guilty of that as a lender. But I could see that that was making the market not as inclusive as it ought to be. And there was many great businesses who just weren't getting a look in to get access to finance because they just didn't fit a particular profile. So I thought, well, what would happen if we could use actual business health data, um, i.e. real-time insight on the actual performance of that business in real time that could be used in addition to credit risk data? Um, and it was a bit of a hypothesis, a bit of a hunch, and I, I exited the business to scratch that itch and uh, turned out we were right. So what we do as a business is we we provide a portfolio risk um, platform that allows us to identify which businesses within a lender's portfolio are likely to grow, which ones are likely not to grow, and provide all the intelligence as to why against 30 different growth KPIs. So that means that a individual lender will be able to know exactly who they should be investing more time and resources into, particularly in a post-COVID world, um, as opposed to relying heavily on third-party data sources or relying on credit risk data. Um, all our information comes through our model that comes directly from their existing customers. So we don't use any third-party data sets at all. Um, but what it allows our lending partners to do is to benchmark and monitor the health of their businesses and therefore reduce risk, reduce cost, and improve their overall business performance. Um, so the problems for us are really trying to help the lenders to make much more informed decisions based on much more appropriate insight and data. Um, and we do it at scale. So we, we sit in the cloud, it's an automated service. So it means our lenders also don't have the cost and heavy lifting to, to take care of. Um, and so for us, for the long term, what we really want to do is just make access to finance completely inclusive. 
you know, we see ourselves as the kind of standards and poor for business health and performance. So it's really providing a health rating model, but using data intelligence to drive change for the lending market. And you mentioned post-COVID there, obviously you had launched the business before, uh, pre-COVID. Yep. Has that, how did that impact the business? I mean, did it help or, or did it hinder? Well, interestingly enough, we, we founded the business in 2019, officially. Uh, we'd spent a couple of years before that researching, prototyping, going to market, getting feedback and going down a whole startup journey. You know, so doing a bit of it, consultancy gigs while I'm, I'm doing the evenings and weekends with the business. Um, but we actually went to market in the first lockdown on purpose. Ah, okay. Um, we, we went to market in June of the first lockdown um, because we knew two things. Number one, the market was in such a disarray that at some point the government has to step in. The market was just too unbalanced and too decimated to have a very clear focus on what they need to do as a lending market. And two, the volume of SMEs who are being challenged and being um, suffering through COVID also meant that at some point, those lenders have to make different decisions to support the businesses who will thrive um, for the long term. The difference in the middle is that no one knew what the model would need to look like and no one knew what a good business would look like in the future because everything was so disrupted. So we pivoted our whole business on that basis and we built our technology alongside the market. So we built a focus group with business, with, with financial lenders, spoke to a number of businesses all the way through so for that first lockdown right through to uh, December last year, um, we basically built our products based on customer feedback, based on the market feedback. So we knew we were building something that was going to be responsible to need. And so whereas our competitors were trying to sell their existing solutions in new ways, we were building a brand new solution for the whole market, global market, directly with the market. Um, and so we commercially have gone to market um, in Q1 of this year, and the feedback's been amazing. Uh, and we're really, really excited about what we're, what we're planning to do and, and, and the next steps. Very exciting, uh, good timing, and uh, just sounds like good acumen all around. So let's talk a little bit about your role as the founder and CEO of the, the GFA Exchange. What is the day-to-day -day, um, in the life of Joel uh, Blake? And, you know, is there anything that you wanted to uh, share with the audience? Yeah, the day-to-day -day for me is is being at the forefront of championing what we're doing, championing our difference in the market and trying to build the strategic partnerships and relationships that can add value to all. Um, we have a great team who are absolutely passionate about diversity and passionate about inclusion. And that's our heart. That's our purpose. You know, we want to be the number one for measuring business health in the most inclusive way. Um, and data gives us the, the ability to do that. But it's all about using that data in the right way. And there are so much data sets and so many data pools out there you can choose. But we've just focused in on unlocking hidden intelligence from our clients that they don't already have about their clients. And that's what makes us a really unique proposition. And and and, and so a day to day is about just really championing that. Um speaking, you know, spreading the message, being involved in great initiatives like this and um really making sure we're collaborating and sharing our message with people who align with our values, who want to see a much more fairer, equitable, and inclusively driven access to finance market. And that's what we're here for here to do. It's interesting you say looking for companies to align with your values. I mean, what what is the, this is just a left field question, but what is the, the process for that? Are you, if a certain company doesn't match that, that criteria, is that, is that something you'd, you'd 
just walk away from or encourage them to maybe change or adapt or yeah. rethink there? Yeah, for us, it's it's it's, it's very simple, really. We, we're passionate about sharing content and thought leadership and having discussions with, with partners and potential partners because we want to understand what their forward journey looks like. And are they really the type of organization that we want to work with? You know, many of our, our competitors will work with anyone. And, and for me, it's about values because if we're going to work together, then we're going to make sure that we can really add value together for others. And so we built our business to grow through partnership. Hmm. Um, and so our process is very much around, let's get to know each other. Um, absolutely, you know, we'll demo our product. We'll, we'll talk with your team. Your team can talk with ours. But ultimately we've built a very simplistic system. You know, it's you, you log in, username, password, you can be up and running in under 10 minutes. So it's not difficult to use our system. What's difficult is finding the right partners to build the right relationships. And that's what we spend a lot of our time doing so that, you know, for the long term, we're building the right partners who genuinely care about those who they serve. And let's talk about you. Tell us about some of your achievements at this point in your career. And obviously, I did want to explore and find out how does one obtain an OBE at the end of their name? <laughs> well, I'll start, start with that one first. I think it's probably less about <laughs> obtaining, I guess. I, you know, someone <laughs> someone kindly saw, you know, my journey as, as fit for purpose to put me forward for that, the honours. And, you know, I didn't know who that person was until I think it was about three months after I'd received it. So at the time I was, it was a complete surprise to get a letter through the door saying, you know, you've been nominated, not, you know, not, not just for an award, but an OBE, you know, it's not an MBE, it's an OBE, you know, next to CB than a sir. And I'm like, what? <laughs> um, and, and it was challenging. I'm not going to lie because, you know, as a young um, person from an ethnic minority background to be given or to be an awarded an honor from the British um empire if you like given the historical colonialism and, and history of the british empire it was a challenging conversation i had with my family and with my community but the reason why i accepted it because it's also about legacy you know li life is about understanding the past but it's about also learning lessons from the past to to change the narrative for the future um and for me that was an absolute highlight and an honor to to do to to accept that award to go to Buckingham Palace with my parents who came over from the Caribbean to start a new life here. So for their son, who they put blood, sweat, and tears in, you know, to to be able to be in the heart of the institution of the UK, you know, for something positive uh, was amazing. And you know, my wife and my my family and everyone just really seeing and feeling the impact of that was just just amazing so that was definitely a highlight of my life and also the fact that it was an award for me just being my own congruent self you know someone saw fit to put me forward based on my passion and who I am as a person not because of you know other fantastic things it's because of me and my commitment to wanting to help others so that was an amazing amazing thing for me mm. but other other achievements obviously just being able to start a business um and and you know my consulting business and we've now been going 15 years you know to be able to have dodged and bobbed and weaved and been able to survive challenges along the way to still be here is has been a blessing um and i thank all our clients and partners and customers and those who believed in what we're doing who supported us through the dark times as well as the good you know, it's it's been amazing to to still be here doing that business, and then obviously with with this business that we that we have now with GFA, 
um, you know, to, as I say, to launch a business in the lockdown and to be seen as one of the top 10 or top 100 fintechs in the UK and I won the top 10 for innovation for financial services. You know, as a startup, you, you can't, you can't, you know, dream of those things, but it also means it's also about execution and it's about helping um, organizations in the financial services space to execute better, to be stronger and to be more sustainable. And we just aim to do that through data. Great. I mean, yeah, fabulous achievements and well done, you know, for your contribution. And it, it sounds like you already are changing the narrative and utilizing the platform you've been given um, to to do that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, well done. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about diversity because um, it is um, one of, um, you know, one of your, your passions is, in your opinion, it had you feel like enough has been done um, about diversity? And what you've seen right now in the market? That's a really great question again, Craig, because you'd think as someone from a different minority background talking about diversity, I'm going to talk about it in that real kind of political, social and moral sense. For me, those three areas are a given. I think the conversation is much more around inclusion and around equity rather than diversity by itself. But the way I operate in in my kind of world and, and my approach to these sectors is that it's about the action on the back of putting in the things that make diversity and inclusion a natural part of your organization. I think for too long, we get hung up on, you know, we need to do this. We need this rule in place. We need this process in place. We need this system. It's a black thing. It's an Asian thing. It's a female thing. It's a disability thing. It's an LGBTQ plus thing. We get so wrapped up in the silos, we forget that it's about an inclusion thing where any sh- any person, regardless of their characteristic, uh, characteristic should have the opportunity to be their best self. That's the real problem. It's not about any one of those particular areas. Now, that being said, all those things are all admirable areas and they're all things that have a level of importance, 100%. And I'm not dis- discounting any one of those areas against another. But in, order for, but in order for organizations to truly embrace diversity and inclusion, they really need to think about how they make this a natural part of what they do, not something that they have to do. And in my experience, the best way of being able to get to that state has been talking about the commercial bottom line of investing in it and providing evidence as to why you need to invest in it. Because I think once you do that, and once an organization gets the commercial argument, in their own business, not a report that's external, but in their own business, then the moral, social and political case just becomes a natural part. They would invest more for the long term. It becomes much of a strategic decision, not a thing to do because it's flavor of the month. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Um, Part of my journey, I spent some time within the sports arena around diversity. I was the the national um, diversity advisor for golf. And as you can imagine, golf itself probably wasn't the most diverse sport at the time or certainly wasn't recognized as such um, for, for a whole manner of reasons. But I remember going into a golf club and I won't say which one, but I went into the golf club um, somewhere in the UK and I was coming in to do some diversity training. Now, if you think about me again, six foot tall black guy going into a private golf club, which didn't belong to the governing body of the sport, number one, because you didn't need to. And there was no requisite for you to do that. Very, very wealthy golf club. All the memberships are full. There's a waiting list to join that golf club. It doesn't need anybody else. It's surviving. It's doing well. So why would they want to hear about diversity and inclusion when about 95% of their demographic was white, 
male and of a certain age. Why would they want to bring on any form of diversity, whether it's women, disability, what have you? So I remember going into this golf club, walked into the clubhouse, gone into the room where I'm delivering the training. Typical, if you imagine the scene, alt panelled walls, on the, on, the pitch, on, the room, on the walls is pictures of every other club captain from 18, whatever. And I've walked in saying, hi, here I am to talk about diversity. But I realise, and you know, you walk in, you know, that whole movie where everyone looks, to, looks around to the left and there's all the eyes are on you. But for me as a person, I knew that I'm there to add value. I'm not there to be the antagonist. I'm not there to be the activist. I'm not here to kind of have my black fist in the air and kind of tell them what they need to do. I'm here to help your business to grow. So my approach was about the money because I also knew that because of their membership, within 10 years, that golf club will no longer survive because of the dying population within their local area. I did my research before I went in. So I used diversity as a financial hook for them to really understand its importance. And so by laying out the business case, by laying out the, the uh, age case, I was able to have a much more informed conversation with them about why it's important to bring it in. By the end of that two hour session, I found out that, you know, one guy's got a place in Barbados, he goes every six months. Another one used to go out with a black woman and, and another one was married to one. And so it made me also think to myself, hold on a second, even as the person that has the characteristic, you yourself could also um, go in there with a prejudicial eyes because I was going there expecting the heat. By the time I left, I made great friends in the room. So diversity and inclusion is about how much you want to make it part of your natural part of your organization and how open you are to your own vulnerability and your own humility to make it work. Um, and that's, I think that's more important than ever before in this post-COVID world. I think authenticity also goes a long way in that, you know, it's, it's something that you really, you, you know, you, you have to believe in it. You, you can't just, like you say, just say it for the or do it for the sake of doing it it has to come from the right place and if you don't believe in it and it's coming from the wrong place then don't do it mm. it's better you stand up and say you know what i don't believe in it and i'm doing what we're doing but if that's working for you cool but i guarantee it won't work for the long term so you have to come from an authentic position and do you play golf so i obviously played quite heavily during that time i think over time okay i kind of waned a little bit I like just going to the driving range and whacking the ball as far as I can these yeah. days. I mean, I can't tell you the last time I played around, but um, I'd, I'd like to get back into it. <laughs> uh, yeah, really, really good example there. And um, you know, from golf to financial services, how do you see diversity interplaying with other drivers of innovation to shape future business models, particularly within financial services? Yeah, I think diversity and inclusion is what I call a catalyst for change. And, and therefore, as a catalyst for change, it leaves you open to combine with other things that drive success for all. I think within financial services, what I've certainly seen is, is a number of things. I think, number one, there's been a desire to be more agile as financial firms. I think one would argue that the financial services sector has been traditionally conservatist in terms of its approach and how it works. Um, you know, very conservative in its outlook, in its people, in the decisions that are made hierarchy. But I think what COVID has shown is that those those types of things won't work for the long term. Those same firms now need to be more agile, be more innovative, need to think more entrepreneurially as organisations. And the winners who come through this whole pandemic and through the other side will be the ones who embrace innovation faster than trying to hold on to traditional conservative approaches of days gone by. Um, so having that agility is important. And that's agility in terms of business model, infrastructure, people strategy, 
customer markets, how you use digital technologies, you've got to be much more innovative. I think the second thing I've seen with financial services and where um, diversity and inclusion plays a huge part is talent pools. I think, um, you know, everyone's talking about you should always go to different talent pools to get different diverse talent, which is true. But how are you making those, how are you replenishing those talent pools as an organization? So it's not about just taking from the pools. What are you doing to invest in the pools? So for example, are you connecting with new networks within your organization? Are your CSR strategies really embedded in the community? Or are you just flying in, doing a bit of piece of work, you know, painting a school fence or picking up some rubbish and, and, and that's it? You know, where's the strategic investment in the long-term development of those talent pools? Because the current generation now and the next generation to follow are the ones who will be creating a much more inclusive world. Um, the millennial generation are already thinking in terms of culture, not diversity. You know, they're, they're, they're looking at your, your values to drive decision-making about whether they want to work with you. And talent is harder to find more than ever before. Great talent is almost impossible. Exceptional talent, mm, very, very difficult. So I think diversity and inclusion is the thing that will help you to think differently about how you approach the way in which you get talent in. And the third and final thing I would say is the, um, I guess the proliferation of data and the, just the sheer vastness of data. Um, you know, one of the things that we say in our business is that data is noisy because there's so much data available, it's difficult to find the right data that's relevant for you. And so we're saying to organizations, think about your diversity of data too. And think about it in a, in a very simple way. We, we have a, what we call a triple D effect, which is where data meets diversity meets digital. So it's thinking about what type of data you're, you're collecting, where you're collecting it from, how you're using it. And then how are you using the diverse intelligence that you're pulling from that data? So when you're extracting the data itself and you're taking information out from that data, what is that diverse intelligence that you're using? And with that diverse intelligence, how are you using digital technologies to accelerate the benefit of that intelligence? Um, and it's that triple D effect that kind of sits at the heart of our business and our mentality in terms of helping financial services firms think differently about the information that they get in where they get it from and how they use it. And just touching on the sort of talent pool in that, uh, you know, in that conversation, do you think that with the new distributed workforce and not having to come into, you know, these um, city locations, do you think that's going to help in terms of the recruitment of a more, you know, inclusive workforce? I think it will. I genuinely think it will, Craig, but I think it will if you put in the right supported infrastructure around that too. Um, you know, having a much more distributed workforce doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be diverse by nature, but it will be diverse by nature if you're putting in the, the sticky things, the, the glue that, that brings that distributed network together into one kind of spider's web, if you like. So, you know, flexible working, home care, those types of things. I mean, those things are that were we talked about for, for many, many years, for many decades, but COVID-19 and, and the whole um, pandemic has, dare I say, accelerated um, the use of and, and the, the appeal and the benefits of, of those types of things, for example. So yeah, it's about just make sure you've got the right infrastructure in place and make sure the infrastructure is inclusive, um, not just relying on a distributed workforce to drive your inclusion. And then I like the, the triple D effect. So have a few questions around that. And obviously our podcast is all around, you know, the future of technology. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to just touch on that quickly. So 
Joel, which technologies, business practices, and values do you see shaping the future of successful financial organizations? Mm, really great question. Um, I can only talk from my own personal opinion because there's a myriad of technologies and I think it's quite subjective to the organization themselves about what they think is best for them. Not everything is, is right for every organization. But what I would say is... Um, and I'm probably biased, obviously, from a fintech and AI point of view, because you know that's the business that we're in. Um, but the way in which AI is being adopted and used and can be used in the future, I think that's going to fundamentally change the way in which organizations operate. Because it's the, the predictive quality of AI that can inform decision making. And that decision making will, will make or break many organizations. So it's the application of AI and how you use it and how you're using the results from it, which I think is going to be a game changer. And it's already happening. You know, we're not talking about something that's due to come. It's already here. It's it's how are you applying that in your organization at scale? I think blockchain is another great, a great thing. Again, it's already here. But I don't think many organizations have still taken the jump in FS to really look at how that could be applied in their organization. Um but one thing that I'm really interested in myself is the whole NFT space um, and how NFTs are being adopted across organization. Um, you know, in terms of financial services, I think it'd be quite quite well adapted there if it's utilized in, in, in the right way. I think the idea of having a really clear understanding of your digital assets and, and the authenticity of that digital asset can be a game changer for the right organization. But I'm also seeing NFTs scaling into other sectors, you know, the sports tech space, for example. Um, you know, the NBA have been using kind of NFTs for for, for a number of years now um, before it's even blown up. So I think there's opportunities right across the board. And I think the financial services sector, if they're clever about it, organizations in that space will, in, will utilize technology in conjunction with moving into other spaces so, because financial services is financial services, right? Money makes businesses work ultimately. So, financial services means there's always going to be a role for that. But financial services linked with other sectors using technologies is quite an, a great opportunity if organisations think savvily uh, in, in a really um, savvy way about that. Yeah, and then talking about that, maybe we can unpack that idea a bit more. So, financial organisations they have no choice but but to innovate yeah i know i think in previous discussions uh, you know you you mentioned that there's some are quite cautious about opening up to change but what advice would you give to to those sort of cautious mindsets um, about innovation and you know the, and the disruptors that are coming through yeah again another great question for me fail fast simple as that but fail your successes won't come by getting it right every single time. So there has to be a commitment of resource and time to try ideas, to try innovations, to try new things, knowing that not everything will work. But it's about how quickly could you fail, learn, and then implement that learning in order to move forward. And I think that the cautious nature of, of the FS sector is that no one wants to fail. It's one of the most risk-averse sectors um that's often been founded in a very as i say traditional conservative approach to business so risk is not necessarily a word that's actually well received in the space yet financial services financial markets 
take the biggest risk, whether it's lending, investing, stock exchange, insurance, it's, it's, it's based on risk. So taking calculated risks with a, with a willingness to fail and fail quickly, I think is the way in which these firms can survive and can learn and more importantly, build the sustainable solutions that can drive the future of their organizations. Um, you know, and when we talk to our partners, we spend most of the time trying to help them to understand how they could take the learning from what we're doing with them as GFA into other areas of their business, because it's about taking your resource and utilizing it in a different way in order to create positive change. That could be taken in any shape or form within any organization. So calculated risks, but fail, fail fast, but fail. And the, the, the triple D effect, could that also play into how they would innovate by combining those three you know, important pillars? That is something yeah. that they can use as a sort of benchmark. Absolutely, because data, diversity, and digital technologies are, are, are here to stay. You know, they're not going anywhere. But how you use that for us is important. As I say, it's it's what data are you using and why. It's then what's the diverse intelligence you're getting from that data. And then it's how you're using digital technologies to accelerate the benefit of using that intelligence. And if you do that in a safe, secure, and stable manner, in a, in a robust and scalable environment, then that's when the returns will come. You know, And that's why, you know, selfishly for us as a business, we built our product directly to go into a cloud environment so we can scale as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, because we know that maximizes value for all our clients as fast as possible and as quickly as possible. So we like to kind of walk our talk, I suppose. Yeah. And who's making the decisions around technology impl and implementation within your organization? Do you Are you involved in that? Is, is that something... Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're still we're still nimble and agile as a business, you know. Like I said, we're we're you know less than well probably what nineteen months old now. So as a business for us, we're we're still learning. Um, we we haven't got everything right. I'm not going to profess that we have. Um, but what we do have right are the fundamental things that we know our customers and our our, and our partners want, and and we're really proud of that. And so in terms of the decision making, I have as much a hands on approach as I can. Um. And, and I adequately split my time each each day and each week um, to make sure that I'm, I'm as close to my, my partners as possible, while also being the face and being the voice and making sure that um, I'm sharing our message wide and wide and wide and far. And I just I just think in this day and age where we are right now, it's important just to keep understanding and listening to your your customers and your partners. Um, you know, being part of their family as much as you want them to be part of yours. And then. You know, I think we have a, a number of different listeners from various backgrounds, different levels of seniority. And I'm interested to know, so you had this idea for this business and then you brought together some developers and uh, the strategy and, and you try to make, you know, you married them up and got the business going. Is that kind of how it kicked off? But yeah, was it in a pub as well, I believe? you. Yeah, it's, launched it, was, the company. it was one of them typical conversations. I'm like, you know what, we could do this bit better. And uh, at the time, my, my two colleagues, you know, they wanted to continue with the lending business as it was. It was very lucrative. Was, there was not an issue. We, we were we were very, very transparent what we were doing and we were adding great value. Um, but it was just an itch I wanted to scratch and the, the, the inclusive side of what we were doing. It's not that we weren't inclusive. I just thought that we could be even more. And I could see that across the market, the whole market could be inclusive. 
Um, and so in typical entrepreneurial fashion, I just took the risk, you know, spoke to my wife, spoke to my, my family and said, look, I'm going to scratch this itch. It's going to be rocky for a while, but I need your support. Um, and started out just building MVPs. My, my first MVP was a, was a drawing an a, on A4 sheet of what I thought the product should do. Um, and then found a developer who helped me to create an MVP model, which is when I, I used to talk, start to talk to potential customers, got the feedback, went back to the drawing board, ripped it all up because it just didn't work, started again and just went for the iterative process really. Um, it was only 2019 where we recognized that we'd gone through so many iterations and got so much feedback that we actually had something that was now, that was now a value for the market. Um, and so we founded the business then and then we raised some some private angel investment. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to kind of build our first product. Um, and as I say, we went to market. And then at the back of that, we were um, noticed by a someone who worked at Innovate UK about funding they had available. So we applied for that funding. We got that for the first time of reckoning. Um, we'd never applied for public funding before. I've never applied for public funding in my life. So to get it first time was great, which then covered you know, our costs and our build costs and our development costs, which gave us the flexibility to be able to walk alongside the market. So we've been fortunate and, and been lucky, um, but you, you take the luck, uh, you, you take the opportunities and you execute. Um, and for us, execution is about the value for our for our customers. And uh, I like to think that we're, we're delivering that, but as I say, we've still got a long way to go. We've got a very clear plan and uh, we'll make it happen. It's a good recipe for success, isn't it? A little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, a little bit of hard work uh, all come together. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, you, I'd, I'd say I would classify you as a disruptor. You're certainly not afraid of of a bit of disruption. Is there anything that inspires this? Are you, are you reading things? Are you? Is it just like those aha moments when, you know, you're gazing at the clouds and you think, oh, I've got it. Mm. I mean, is there anything that you can share with a bit of insight into into that. It might sound a bit of a cliche, right? But disruption is absolutely in my DNA because, you know, I come from a, a background and environment where you, you have to build your resilience. You have to build your, your ability to succeed. You have to take the opportunities as they come. You have to do it for the right reasons in the right way. And so my sense of disruption has come from my own lived experience and my own desire to maximize potential regardless of any difference that anyone may have you know so i'm very clear about my core and my center and and what really drives me you know but yeah along the way there's been many 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 books i've read there's been many conversations i've had there's been great mentors who've seen things in me that i didn't see in myself and it's helped shape me so you know it's about being humble and being vulnerable and being open but at the same time, being unapologetic about what value you can provide. Um, like if I've got something in my head and I can picture how it would work, you cannot tell me I can't do it. I may not know how right now. I may not have the resource, but it's already in my head. So you cannot tell me it's not going to work. <laughs> and, and it's either you believe me and you keep going with me, or you get out of my way because it's going to happen. And, and that innate sense of self-belief is something that I think has helped me through the good times and the bad. Mm. Um, you know, my, my, I've got a bit of a reputation as, and a bit of a moniker as a rebel in a suit because I work in a much more of a traditional space and I'm completely opposite to what people believe the space would ought to be. You know, I never started out as a tech on, technology entrepreneur. Yeah, I am one and I'm delivering as one. And so 
it's just building on that as much as I can to keep adding value, but not forgetting my core, my core center. This has uh, been really fascinating and I'm sure we could speak for hours. Uh, there's so many things I, I did want to explore further and, and maybe we can do that another time. But I think let's, uh, we'll move on to the, the short fire questions. Oh no, oh no. Slightly <laughs> a bit more fun. Uh, just adding a little bit of personality uh, into the show, but it was great to hear your story, Joel. I'm, I will be uh, following your career with uh, some interest and hopefully we'll we'll get to meet at some point in the future. Absolutely. If okay. someone wanted to meet you, are you are you are you doing anything in the, the not so distant future any events or speaking anywhere that people can can dial in on? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm speaking in, uh, uh, quite often. Um, I mean, just this week I've got two two talking um, gigs around um, women in in tech. Um, so doing it for for Bunhill PLC. Um, but yeah, I, I talk quite regularly. Um, but if people want to follow, follow me, they can do so on, on my LinkedIn. So Joel Blake OBE, um, the GFA, GFA exchange.com mm-hmm. and on Twitter, Mr. Joel Blake. Um, so quite active, quite vocal online. Um, and, uh, yeah, look out for some, some, some of our live stream events that we'll be doing. Um, okay. and look out for GFA.tv and I'll keep that as it is for now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exciting. So what's your guilty technology pleasure? It's a bit geeky, but LinkedIn, it's actually my <laughs> guilty pleasure. I actually like LinkedIn quite a lot. That's, I think that's mine too. I've never thought about it like that. <laughs> it sounds so boring, right? Doesn't it though? But I actually, I like it. I just like meeting people in it. <laughs> I deleted uh, the Instagram and the Facebooks and stuff. And I think then I just defaulted to my LinkedIn and maybe that's why, but yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And a favorite book you've read recently? Um, the Slight Edge by a guy called Jeff Olson. It's one book that I keep repeatedly reading. It just talks about that extra inch, that extra mile. When it's all said and done, what does it mean, that extra bit? Um, and yeah, I, I love that. Great book. And did you pick up any hobbies during the pandemic? I picked up riding. Um, so I bought myself a bike and I've been kind of riding quite a lot, me, me and the family um, as well. Um, and uh, I started before the lockdown, but I picked up my camera again. Um, so it just gives me a bit of time just to kind of de-stress. And it's that whole thing about capturing everything in a moment. Mm. It just distills in the focus. It just keeps my brain in check with all the madness that goes on on a daily wow. basis. And if you could learn one new professional skill, anything in the world right now, what would it be? Oh, that's hard, Craig. <laughs> There's too many things I want to do. Um, professional skill. I'd actually want to learn more about blockchain. I know it's a bit easy. It's a bit of a cop out because you can just go on Google or whatever and learn about it. But I'd want to learn a little bit more about that, partly because I can see how that could apply in, in many businesses, including, including my own. Yeah, and um, are you, you think blockchain's here to stay then? I think so. I, I think yeah. so. I think I think that the, the level of trust and authenticity that blockchain allows you to create, I think that's what we're reverting back to as 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 a, a human race. I know it sounds all philosophical, but I think COVID has allowed us to learn how to connect with each other more um, and how we can build trust and authenticity with each other more. And I think that will be replicated in the technologies because ultimately technology is not here to replace people. People still create the technologies. So I think the essence of that will transfer itself into technology and people want to link back with things that they could trust. 
and I think blockchain um, is an evidence of that. Yeah. And this is a, a good one. What would your family say you did versus what your friends say you do versus what your colleagues say you do? Oh, wow. Um, my family would say that I'm, I'd say they'd say I'm a community leader over a business person. My friends would say that I'm a business person over a community. And my colleagues would say that I'm anything that Joel chooses to be on any given day. <laughs> no, 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 I th- yeah, I think I think they'd say I'm a disruptor. Okay. Um That's because good. even within even within the organization, within the business, we're always trying to find new disruptive ways to do what we're doing. And I'm normally the person who's like, I've got an idea. And they'd be like, Joel, 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 but okay, yeah, scrap that. But I've got another one. <laughs> Joel Blake, OBE, thank you so much for your time. I've loved having you as a guest on the show. Um, I hope you found it useful and hopefully we can we can continue the discussions at some point in the not so distant future. Yeah, Craig's been amazing. Thank you very much. I think you've got a great platform here providing some you know, real real quality and values for your listeners. So um, it's a pleasure just to kind of just share some humble thoughts with you on this platform. And um, yeah, hopefully your, your, your listeners find it of, of value. So yeah, thank you. I'm sure they will. Thank you again, Joel. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to leave uh, some positive reviews. Thank you so much for your time.